A heads up before we get started. Mobbed Up contains explicit content, such as adult language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised that this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. May 25th, 1978. It's an unseasonably warm Thursday evening in Kansas City, Missouri, in Independence Avenue, one of the busier streets running through the city's northeast neighborhood, has quieted down for the night. A man and a woman walk down the street together, apparently wrapping up a date. When the couple nears the corner of Independence Avenue and Prospect Avenue, they start to make their way toward an Italian restaurant, the Villa Capri. All the lights inside the restaurant are off, and it's obviously closed. But the couple doesn't appear bothered by that. They're apparently just looking for a bit of privacy, so they turn into the doorway of the Villa Capri and spend a few moments there, locked in a romantic embrace. Then, within a few minutes, they continue their walk down Independence Avenue, heading east. If you were walking down Independence Avenue that night, you probably wouldn't have given this couple a second thought. Or if you did, you'd just assume their decision to step into this doorway for a few moments was spontaneous a spur-of-the-moment end to a romantic evening. But it wasn't. Everything about this series of events had been meticulously planned. Once you got Once power, you got a lot of power, power, you don't care about the money no more. For the Las Vegas Review-Journal, in partnership with the Mob Museum, I'm Reed Redmond. He's one of you, you kill him. You're listening to Mobbed Up, a true story about money. You're not supposed to have a profile like that, especially in Vegas. Crime. You want to be very quiet so you can steal the money. He always said, if you pull a gun on somebody, you finish it, because if you don't, it's going to come back to haunt you. And I remember saying, what's going on here? And he's saying, they're trying to kill me. And I said, who's trying to kill you? And then he shut up. And the fight for control of Las Vegas. The FBI will continue to look to the future to use the latest and most sophisticated techniques to fight organized crime. The mob would have destroyed Las Vegas. It's only a question, not if, but when it would be destroyed. I was there every day with these fellas. I had no idea that there was uh, a mob. And he once told somebody, there's bodies out there in the desert, and there's more every day. But if there is one area where the word war is appropriate, it is in the fight against crime. When you grab them, you'll bring them to the desert. You're going to know where the hole has been dug. Part 8. Straw Man. So, the man and woman who stopped in front of a restaurant in the opening scene of this episode were a pair of FBI agents, pretending to be out on a date. And they'd stopped in front of that particular restaurant, the Villa Capri, for a reason. It was a joint that was familiar to members of law enforcement like Gary Jenkins, a former intelligence detective with the Kansas City Police. The Villa Capri was like a small neighborhood bar, 
pizza joint. Been there for years and years. It was operated by a guy named Ross Strada, who had grown up in Little Italy and Columbus Park area with the rest of these guys. He was a bookie himself, a trusted guy. And it was the kind of place if you walked in and you weren't known, everybody would just kind of stop to see who you were. I went in there a couple times myself, but you know, if you're just going in and sit down with somebody and, and order a pizza and mind your own business, they quit staring at you, but it was one of those kinds of places. An FBI informant had provided information to the government that conversations related to local murders would be taking place inside the Villa Capri, and the FBI had gotten probable cause to install microphones at a back table of the restaurant. According to Bill Ousley, former supervisor of the FBI's organized crime squad in Kansas City, that's where the agents pretending to be out on a date came into the picture. The tech agents are responsible uh, for their plan. Well, I can tell you in this case, we had a guy from Washington come out, and uh, he's probably a genius when it comes to this kind of thing. But anyway, he and a female agent uh, went up on the avenue and uh, pretended to be... Uh, smooching in the doorway and while they were uh, doing that hugging and and uh, what have you uh, he picked the lock and they got in it was that simple with the door unlocked other agents were able to sneak in undetected and install microphones at the back tables of the restaurant bill ousley was hopeful that as soon as the restaurant opened back up the mics would start to pick up conversations about the recent string of local murders it was a lot of nothing for about a week and uh one day I came in to work and the night crew had put the tape on my desk. They didn't know what it was. We had a lot of guys who were not working organized crime helping on the uh, monitoring. And he said, uh, I think there's something in this. You better hear it. And so I got pretty excited. I said, man, we're going to solve these damn murders. So I turned the tape on and start listening. And I said, oh, my Lord, this is... <laughs> This is a surprise. It was just, a, you know, just a moment when you say, this is crazy. What you're hearing right now is actual audio picked up from the microphones installed inside the Villa Capri. And yes, it's nearly impossible to make out all the words on this tape. But as Bill Ousley and his team started to listen back to this audio, they realized they were picking up on something far bigger than they'd anticipated. This was not on a radar. It came out of the blue. You know, then as I listened for the third time or fourth time, I'm saying, oh my goodness. Here they are trying to hear information about local murders, and what they pick up is, is terms like Teamsters Union and $25 million and genius and lefty and the stardust. It wasn't immediately clear what all of these code names and phrases meant. Genius and lefty and the stardust. Remember, these agents were trying to investigate local murders connected to the mob. Not some interstate conspiracy involving multi-million dollar loans, front men, and Vegas casinos. Now, we're looking for murder. We're looking for evidence of conspiracy to murder, to bomb, extortion, the whole works. Las Vegas, the last thing on our mind. 
But when they sat down that night, they talked about Las Vegas. And it was obvious uh, that this could be the break that we've been looking for, or the FBI had been looking for, for since I think uh, Bugsy Siegel put the uh, Flamingo together. Listening to this conversation that took place at the Villa Capri was like dropping into a movie halfway through. The agents knew this was a big deal, and with help from the FBI in Las Vegas, they were starting to weave together some of the threads, the names and places. But they were still missing key plot points. At that point, all we had was a coded conversation. That was it. We had a, oh, it was wonderful. But when we sat down and uh, Icewater was uh, put on arts, we said, Oh, Jesus, you know, that's all we have. The two participants of the conversation were Carl Savella, who was the brother of Kansas City crime boss Nick Savella, and Carl, or Tuffy, DeLuna, who was described to me as an underboss of the Kansas City crime family. Carl DeLuna was reporting on what he was getting from Las Vegas. And at the end, they said, well, we got to get a hold of this guy In other words, from the things that they had been discussing, they needed to guide this guy. And we need to get a hold of him. And I don't know if he said, I got to go out and get a phone or something. But it was obvious that he was in touch with somebody telephonically on a regular basis. Again, it's awfully hard to make out. But here's the part of the conversation Ousley is talking about, where DeLuna states, I don't want to call him from here. I think we ought to just get to a phone. At one point in time, he ended a conversation with, I don't want to use a phone here. Let's, I got to go find a phone. Well, you know, and he's talking about some business that is connected with this other conversation he had, which we deduce has something to do with Las Vegas. So you got to find that phone. They're not going to really talk too much stuff in that bar. So you got to find that phone. And man, they, they put a full court surveillance on uh, Tuffy Luna. As a member of the Kansas City Police Department's intelligence unit, Gary Jenkins worked with the FBI to track Carl Tuffy to Luna and find the phone. And they catch him going north on a Universal Street. And there's a hotel up in there, like about a six-story hotel, the Breckenridge Inn. There's a little restaurant next to it. And so they catch him up at the Breckenridge Inn, and then somebody catches him up there again. They get out and walk in, and they see him back on the phone. There's a bank of three payphones. Like, bam, we got him. We got him. We got his secret stash of payphones. The FBI would be able to establish probable cause and set up electronic surveillance on the payphone Tuffy DeLuna was using inside this hotel, the Breckenridge Inn. From that point on, the FBI was able to listen in every time Tuffy placed a call to Las Vegas. Uh, I don't know how the hell I got mixed up to this. 
as the FBI listened to Tuffy DeLuna's phone calls at the Breckenridge Inn. They figured out that he was talking to another Kansas City mob associate named Joe Augusto, who was out in Las Vegas. If these names sound familiar, they came up briefly on a previous episode of this series. They were the same guys who were overheard on wiretaps referring to Senator Harry Reid as Cleanface or Mr. Clean. So who exactly was Joe Augusto, the guy on the Las Vegas end of these calls? Well, Bill Ousley described him to me as a fraudster, someone who could carry out any kind of scam you could think of. By the late 70s, when these wiretapped calls were taking place, Augusto had conned his way into a position of authority at the Tropicana Hotel on the Las Vegas Strip. On paper, he was the Tropicana's entertainment director, but in practice, he was overseeing the Kansas City crime family's interests at the Trop. Sound familiar? Essentially what Lefty Rosenthal was to the Stardust, Joe Augusto was to the Tropicana. Granted, he usually managed to stay under the radar more effectively than Lefty. So he was their main ally when these phone calls were going on. They, they had to do, the connection was due to his infiltration of the trap. But he was giving them intelligence on everything going on in Las Vegas. These phone calls between Tuffy DeLuna and Joe Augusto would provide the FBI with all kinds of previously unknown information regarding hidden ownership of Las Vegas casinos. For that reason, the investigation would eventually become known as the Strawman Investigation, named after the Strawman casino owners like Alan Glick at the Stardust, who proved to be serving as a front for the mob. The electronic surveillance in Kansas City became like a um, the falling dominoes. You know, each conversation gave us probable cause, almost, uh, for another phone. The FBI would continue to expand its electronic surveillance efforts throughout 1978, slowly compiling a mountain of evidence and piecing together an increasingly clearer picture of the mob's hidden control of various casinos, namely the Tropicana and the Stardust. As the FBI in Kansas City continues to monitor conversations about the mob's operations in Las Vegas, one of the subjects that comes up again and again on the wiretaps is Lefty Rosenthal, Chicago's overseer at the Stardust. Here's a clip of Joe Augusto talking about Lefty, whom he refers to as Pazzo, Italian for crazy, from a call placed on November 3rd, 1978. He states that if he had the chance to choke Lefty with his hands, he'd do it. According to former FBI agent Bill Ousley, the guys in Kansas City are apparently worried that Lefty's erratic and high-profile behavior might blow their own cover in Vegas. You're not supposed to have a profile like that, especially in Vegas. You want to be very quiet so you can steal the money. Lefty's behavior was also catching the attention of the head of the Kansas City crime family, a guy named Nick Savella. In November of 1978, the FBI would pick up a call placed by Nick Savella at the office of one of his attorneys. At one point in time, Nick Savella is really upset with Lefty Rosenthal. He's creating so many problems, so many headlines with the Gaming Commission that he needs to get him to shut up. In the conversation you're about to hear, Nick Savella is trying to send that very message to Lefty, that he better shut up. 
and he's sending that message through none other than Lefty's lawyer, future three-term mayor of Las Vegas, Oscar Goodman. Is Oscar Goodman? Oh, yes. Hold on a minute, Oscar. You're hearing actual audio of the call between Nick Savella and Oscar Goodman, recorded at 3.44 p.m. on November 13, 1978. I'll let former Kansas City Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins walk you through the call. He starts out in a typical Nick Savella way. He's cool. He covers all the niceties. How you doing? How's the family? How's the missus? How's the children? Hello. Hi, how are you? How are you, sir? Very good. How are you doing? You know who this is? Certainly. How are you doing? I'm good. And uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, first, how's the missus and Grot and the rest of the children? They're all doing fine, thank you. So then he gets into uh, about Lefty, and he said, uh, he makes some statements to him. Well, you know, he said, uh, what's your feeling about the position he's taking? And Goodman says, well, we get into that whole psychological profile. Can I ask you without, I'm not trying to compromise you. I'll just ask you as one, you know, friend to another. Right. What is your feeling about the position he's taking? Uh, Well, uh, we get into that whole... Uh, psychological profile. Yeah, uh, yeah. Back again to that. It's the old story. Yeah. The old story. Uh, I said, it's the same old story. He said, well, w- would you agree that he might be opening a tremendous can of worms? <laughs> and uh, Goodman says, well, I might agree to that, but but he'd never. And Savella says, I, you know, I, I know he'd never agree, but I don't think he's ever made a mistake in his life. And Goodman says, yeah, you're right on that one. Would you agree that he might be opening up a tremendous big can of worms? I might agree to that, but he would never agree. Well, I would not ask him. I know what he would never agree to. I don't think he's ever made a mistake in his life. Right. You know, right. my God, I know people like that, you know. Right, but with the, the timing of certain things here and the things that are happening in town, it's, it's a shame that everything's culminating at the same time. Because uh, one thing is going to affect uh, others. That's my yeah. opinion. Yeah. You know, they keep talking about that. Uh, Oscar Goodman says, yeah, he said, his manhood's at stake. Oh, boy. Yep. Uh, well, let me put it this way. So, uh, he feels that uh, his, his manhood is at stake. <laughs> that's that's your living. All right, well, whatever. And Goodman says, well, you know how he is. You know, he's going to do what he's going to do, basically. So, you know, they ended up really with that. And I want to reach out and talk to him, but don't let him know that I talked to you. It just doesn't make fucking sense. But anyway, I don't want him telling it to you. I should be telling it to him, which I will. Okay. Anyway, listen, I appreciate all this. You always did say that I don't have any trouble getting you. You're right. And I tell people, I reach him. I don't have any trouble. Right. Thanks for the call back. They end this with, uh, Sabella says, well, now, I'm just repeating it. Now, our conversation stays confidential. Goodman says, fine, I didn't even talk to you. Savella says, client attorney, right? Goodman doesn't say right, he says, very good. <laughs> Listen to what, of course, I, I'm just repeating it. Our conversation stays confidential. Fine, I didn't even talk to you. Client attorney, right? Very good. Thank you, buddy, and uh, my best at home. All right, and my best to everybody, too. Thank you very much. Nice to you. Bye. Eventually, Nick Savella managed to get in touch with Lefty directly to tell him to cool it. You gotta cool it. 
And Lefty acts like he's going to. Of course, he doesn't. He, he continues his fight with the Gaming Commission and making the headlines and, and all that and, until finally somebody tries to kill him in the end. A few years after all these conversations were recorded, Lefty's run in Las Vegas would come to an end following an assassination attempt. Jumping ahead to October 4th, 1982, here's longtime Nevada journalist Myron Borders in an interview with the Oral History Research Center at the UNLV Library, Special Collections, and Archives. I remember I was driving home one night down Sahara, and um, as I was passing Marie Callender's, there was a big boom. And I looked over there, and it looked like a car had blown up. When Myram turned around to see what happened, she spotted a familiar face, someone she'd been reporting on for years, scrambling out of a burning Cadillac in a parking lot outside of a Tony Roma's restaurant. And so I pulled into the parking lot, and there was this, I certainly knew Lefty Rosenthal, and he was, he had jumped out of the car, and he was patting his smoking clothes, and his hair was standing straight up, but I knew that he had had a hair transplant, so I didn't know whether his hair was standing up because of the explosion or because of the transplant. <laughs> and I remember saying, what's going on here? And he's saying, they're trying to kill me. And I said, who's trying to kill you? And then he shut up. That was the end of that. He didn't talk anymore. A law enforcement source would tell the Review Journal that after eating dinner and walking out to his car, Lefty had started the ignition while halfway inside the vehicle. So when the explosion occurred, the driver's side door was open. The source stated, quote, It blew him out of the car. That's probably what saved his life. The assassination attempt had failed, but Lefty did leave Las Vegas for good shortly after, moving with his family to California and then Florida. Lefty refused to say who he thought had attempted to kill him, instead opting to tell journalists, quote, Well, it wasn't the Boy Scouts of America. To this day, we still don't know for sure who planned the assassination attempt in 1982. But what is certain is that there were plenty of people who wanted Lefty out of the picture. Of course, high-ranking members of the Kansas City crime family had been unhappy with him for years. It's also a safe bet that some of the top guys in Chicago weren't thrilled with all the attention he was drawing either. Another common theory is that Tony Spilatro, the outfit's enforcer in Vegas, had something to do with it. In 1980, I broke a, a story of a rift between Spilatro and Frank Rosenthal. Review Journal reporter Jeff Gehrman, who was writing for the Las Vegas Sun at the time. Turned out Tony Spilatro had an affair with Frank Rosenthal's wife, Jerry, a former dancer and uh, who was pretty well known in her own right. This affair became public in September of 1980, after Lefty and his wife, Jerry, had a screaming match in front of their home in the Las Vegas Country Club, a scene that would be central to Martin Scorsese's film Casino, based on the book by Nick Pileggi. But this rift between Rosenthal and Spilatro was not good for both men because it created problems for them with the bosses in Chicago. On top of everything else you've heard about him, the mob may have had yet another reason to want Lefty out of the picture. Here's former RJ reporter and columnist Jane Ann Morrison. I was the first one to report that Rosenthal had become a government, a cooperating witness with the government. Jane Ann broke this news in 2008, after Lefty died of a heart attack at age 79. The title of her column? Lefty Rosenthal was an FBI snitch. And we, of course, the, I got people on the record to say that, uh, the sources on the record to say that, because he never got immunity, he never testified, and he was never charged with anything. 
of course he's a snitch. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't take, and pretty much everybody knew it. Um, but they wouldn't say it, you know, law enforcement wouldn't say it while he was still alive because you don't want to be the one FBI agent or gaming control agent that gets Rosenthal killed. So they didn't, they were real careful about that. But after he died of natural causes, at that point, uh, you could say that, yes. Now, what I never found out and what I still haven't found out is what did he give them? Did he give them fake information? Did he just, you know, obviously he was trying to protect himself. Uh, did he really give them anything meaningful? Or did he just give them information that they might chase but never find anything? Getting back to the fall of 1978, four years before Lefty's car bombing. The FBI in Kansas City was learning more and more about hidden ownership of Las Vegas casinos. Through its strawman investigation, the Bureau had taped thousands of hours of conversations between reputed mobsters in Kansas City and associates in Las Vegas. On one of these wiretaps in November of 1978, the FBI learned that Kansas City mob boss Nick Savella was planning a meeting with all of the top players connected to the Kansas City family. Nick Savella himself, his brother Carl or Cork Savella, Tuffy DeLuna, and flying in from Las Vegas, Joe Augusto, the entertainment director at the Tropicana. Also on the guest list for this meeting was someone who hadn't been on the FBI's radar, an executive at the Tropicana named Carl Thomas, who for a long time was thought to be a legitimate businessman. The subject of the meeting? The mob's skimming operations in Las Vegas. And so they know it's going to be about the skim. And, you know, you, if you're going to have a big meeting about the skim, you got you to gotta try to get in on that. The FBI figured out that this big meeting about the skim was set to take place at the home of someone referred to on wiretaps as Josie, a nickname for Josephine Marlowe, an in-law of one of the Savellas. The Bureau was determined to have ears on this meeting, so they sent two agents over to the Marlowe residence dressed up as telephone repairmen. So they have to do a survey of the house first and they get a couple of agents to go in, they, they mess the phone up, and then they get a couple of agents to go in and act like they're phone men, and they're gonna repair the phone. One of the agents tells a story how he got the uh, uh, chili recipe from Mrs. Marlowe while he was in there. They put a, some kind of a microphone in the telephone, which is in kind of a central location, but they see there's like a den uh, off away from the kitchen. There's a formal living room, but then there's a den and there's a TV in it, and they kind of figure that's where the meeting will be. You know, you never know, you can't, can't wire the whole house. Uh, you got to take a calculated risk or get some tips on where the meeting's going to be. And the microphone inside the telephone isn't enough to pick up things out of this, this other room. To install microphones in this other room, the den of the home, the FBI needed to find a way back inside the house. According to Gary Jenkins, it would later be revealed in court that the agents had managed to clone Josephine Marlowe's garage door opener the first time around. When they caught... Uh, Josephine Marlowe leaving one day why they just pulled in the neighborhood with a car that looked like hers and opened the garage door and went in and started uh, putting the installing the microphone so that's it was, it was really a pretty simple deal how they did that November 26th 1978 around 10:30 in the morning Tuffy DeLuna and Joe Augusto show up at the home of Josephine Marlowe and they're greeted by the smell of meatballs in simmering red sauce Nick Savella is already waiting for them 
and he's quick to point out that they're running late. Nick's brother Carl Savella, who goes by the nickname Cork, apparently has to leave for a bit, and in a moment that seems too on the nose for even the corniest of mom movies. He tries to make Joe Augusto more comfortable by fixing him a plate of meatballs on his way out. Nick tells Joe Augusto to sit down. Cork leaves and they get to talking about business. Conversation quickly turns to one of their biggest problems. The outfit's man in charge of the stardust, Lefty Rosenthal. Nick asks, What have you heard about Lefty? What have you heard about Lefty? What I've heard? And you better cover that anyway before Carl gets here. About about Lefty, what's the... But I know it's in the paper. I read all the stories in the paper. Best I got from here. Well, this is here. It's on the Valley Times. You know, I brought you an editorial. They wrote an editorial about a lefty. I used to live there. Joe Augusto had brought a newspaper along with him. He apparently wanted to share a scathing editorial he'd found about Lefty Rosenthal. Nick asks who wrote it, and Augusto tells him. It was the Review Journal. Joe Augusto was holding a copy of the Las Vegas Review Journal. Five days earlier, on November 21st, 1978, a column ran in the paper titled, Rules Bigger Than Frank Rosenthal. As they discussed the column, Nick Savella interjects with, my personal favorite four seconds of audio you're going to hear in this entire series. As with all of these electronic surveillance clips, it's a bit difficult to make out. But what you're about to hear is Nick Savella, the boss of the Kansas City crime family, stating, Well, the Review Journal is a dirty son of a bitch. Well, the Review Journal is a dirty son of a bitch. Later on, during the Marlowe meeting, as it would become known, Carl Thomas shows up and provides an overview of skimming operations at the Tropicana and the Stardust. By this point, the mob had developed a wide variety of skimming methods. According to a later report from the President's Commission on Organized Crime, a report that was no doubt informed by the recordings of the Marlowe meeting, investigators would encounter the following methods of skimming in Las Vegas casinos. The easiest way to do it was to take some cash out of drop boxes on casino floors before the total could be counted. Another common method involved underweighing slot machine proceeds. Because casinos dealt with such a large volume of coins, they would weigh them in batches on electronic scales to count them. But you could alter the coin scales, for example, so that 110 silver dollars would read as only 100 silver dollars, leaving you with a 10% skim. A third skimming method involved falsifying fill slips, which casinos used to track when they replenished the supply of chips on table games. A similar scheme involved falsifying credit slips, which are used to track the removal of chips from table games. Yet another method was to falsify casino expenses in exchange for a loan kickback. And one of the more entertaining methods of skimming, at least in my opinion, is what law enforcement would refer to as a dumping game, 
where someone who's in on the scheme poses as a card player, and the dealer dumps the game to that player by giving them favorable odds or just paying them out whether they're winning or losing. The list goes on and on, and to the delight of the FBI agents listening in, Carl Thomas ran through a history of all these different methods at the Marlowe meeting. So, you know, they just keep talking about it, and Carl Thomas, he makes some of the, the daggone statements. He said, you know, he said, uh, I got the way. He said, that, you know, they tried uh, rigging the scales, and that didn't really work. And, and they're talking about going getting the slots and getting money out of the slots and creating another bank. And I said, well, that's too much trouble. The coin's way too much. And, you know, you you, you got to transfer that into cash money, and that means you got to create another bank and track that money. And there's another way to, uh, they created fill slips where they would fill out a, a false fill slip and make it look like they took money out and put it someplace else from, from another table. And and that was all really complicated. And Carl Thomas said, you know, just do it like I used to do it over at the Circus Circus and like we've been doing. I set it up over at the Stardust the same way. He said, we just got, we have to own all the guys in the count room. He said, you know, there's a guard out front, but I always tip him off at, uh, you know, like $100 a week. And, you know, you just count out the money, just count out the hundreds, boom, boom, boom. These guys go back there, open the box, and snatch the cash. I've used that system for as long as I can There is no record. They take the money, they go to the office, they count it down, boom, 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 boom. The next thing you know, you got $40,000 in the stack, and, and you just take it out with you at night. And Nick's worried about that. He said, well, what about that guy out in front? He said, well, you know, he said, well, what if somebody comes in? Well, I got the guy out front. Well, what if what if he gets suspicious? He said, no, he never has yet. He said, he's not going to as long as you keep him paid off. Well, no, the scales won't be adjusted, but the guy that reads the scale is your hat. You got to have your guy read the scale. I, I bought one of myself. scale cost me 15000 but my guy reads it. It was, it was the most damning conversation I have ever heard about skimming from Las Vegas casinos. So it was a, it was a really enlightening day for law enforcement. Before the meeting wraps up, these guys discuss what the government, which they refer to as the G, might know about their operations. The irony, of course, being that the government is hearing every word they're saying. Then the meeting comes to an end. On part nine of Mobbed Up, the federal government finds an unlikely ally. I have never in my life put a witness on the witness stand without knowing what they're gonna say. <laughs> but I did. This has been part eight of Mobbed Up, a production of the Las Vegas Review Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. Mobbed Up is reported and produced by me, Reed Redmond. As always, you can reach me on Twitter at Red Redmond or by email at rredmond at reviewjournal.com. Our sound designer and audio editor for this series is Jonathan McMichael, who also composed the theme song you're hearing right now. Other sound effects and music used in this episode are from Motion Array and Stephen Arnold Music. Additional audio clips used in this episode come from the Oral History Research Center at the UNLV Library Special Collections and Archives. Thanks to Gary Jenkins, host of the organized crime podcast Gangland Wire for providing access to the electronic surveillance records you've heard on this episode. Thanks also to everyone who shared their insights and stories on this episode. Gary Jenkins, Bill Ousley, Jeff Gehrman, and Jane Ann Morrison. You can learn more about the Mob Museum by heading over to themobmuseum.org. 
You can learn more about Mobbed Up and check out some of the Review Journal's other podcasts by visiting reviewjournal.com backslash podcasts. We'll be back at it next week. Thanks to you, as always, for tuning in.